Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking comfort food. Those albums that may not be the greatest of all time, they're the ones that you always go back to. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and we're breaking this one into two parts. So I'm here with my brother Jeremy to have one part of the conversation, my brother Christian Lewis to have the other part of the conversation. In the spirit of the fact that the three of us have never actually had a holiday together. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more info. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Um, this is one of two parts that we're doing uh, in honor of the holidays called Comfort Food. And that's basically um, any album that you go back to time and time again. Um, again, I'm going to make the distinction. It's not necessarily your favorite or the greatest albums that you think if you had, you know, if you were... Uh, um, grilled by the authorities, but uh, uh, more the ones that you keep going back to despite it all, uh, you know, when you're flying home after a long trip or you're on a long car ride, um, if you are hanging out, if you are facing a bout of depression, um, these are the, you know, these are the albums that you listen to more than any others. And, um, it's uh, it's a yeah it's a it's a minor distinction, uh, but like I said, there's there's albums that I would say you know I would put higher in the pantheon, and yet some of these are the ones that I go to before I go to those. So anyway, um, I've got Jeremy with me now, and um, I've divided the pot up this time. Um, because uh, I'm going to do another with Christian. Um, Christian, born in '88, I did song, I did albums recorded after his birth. So this one is going to cover um, the first uh, 20 years of my life. And joining me is Jeremy Sartori, uh, who's going to Hello. lead off with, uh, you know, just kicking it off with um, what's on your what's on your list. Yeah, so first, I'm going to apologize to our listeners. I will have a, a better sound quality for the next pod. I'm, I've been the holdout on the microphone, so I apologize. But first on my list, and thanks, Wynn, for the introduction, I, I kind of look at this as, um, you know, to your point, not an album that is the best album, not an album that I would necessarily even, you know, go to bat for always, as far as if we were talking in, in kind of rock coolness or, or, you know, soundscaping or any of the things that, that matter to us. But um, my first one came in, in my sophomore year of high school, and it's the Lemonheads, It's a Shame About Ray. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me, it was just, it was in the height of <clears throat> kind of the year punk broke, which was 91, and you had a lot of noisy guitars <clears throat> via Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, Nirvana, uh, Mud Honey. Soundgarden, and, and out came this kind of perfect pop record from uh, Evan Dando and Julian Hatfield on bass, and I think a, a friend of yours, David Ryan, on drums for this yep, album. Yep, uh, high school and, classmate uh, of mine and Juliana, and a, uh, Dave's and was a friend a long time ago. Yeah. So the thing about this record that I, I kind of just always go back to: a, it's short. There's not like a song over. I think there's one song over three minutes, and that's you know three minutes and nineteen seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, 
B, it kind of encapsulates all the stuff I ended up being drawn to later. So initially I was into noisy guitars and, and, you know, punk rock and all the stuff that we sort of get into music for hip hop. But this album is really influenced by Graham Parsons, uh, The Kinks, you know, uh, Big Star. It's just a, a really nice pop record with great backing vocals from Juliana, played bass, and, you know, just a couple highlights. Obviously, the, the title track, It's a Shame About Ray. My favorite song was always the song called The Turnpike Down, which is a, a great little pop ditty. My drug bunny, buddy, not bunny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the other thing about this band was Evan Dando kind of didn't fit. I mean, he was definitely a, a you know, indie rocker. He had, he had found kind of his his uh, initial calling and, and kind of, a, you know, let me had started off a little more loud, a little more raw, but it just never really fit him. He's a pretty guy who did a lot of drugs yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of a goofball and, uh, you know, just sort of a teen heartbeat, but it, you know, teen heartthrob, but it's yeah, but this... a perfect album to me. It's an album that I go back to. I mean, I listen to it today, and I, I, I listen to it probably once a week. This was yeah. This one kind of this was him hitting his stride before uh, um, before he did too many drugs. Uh, but I yeah, I agree with you. What I don't even remember what year that was. It, it sort of ninety two. So it came out in early ninety two. Okay. And, and then it was you know back in the weird days of of record company nonsense. So I think it was released and then re released after they covered a uh, Simon and Garfunkel song. This is Robinson oh, yeah. for the you know movie. Yeah, that was the. Uh, I actually heard that in the Whole Foods today. So there you go. Um, okay, well, uh, I think one we both have uh, just to go fully uh, in reverse in, in terms of coolness and, um, you know, uh, the canonical acceptance of things. I think we both have Exile on Main Street on here. And we do. It is an album that I will put on start to finish as much as any album ever. Um, and I never get tired of it. It's, it, it just sort of takes you home sometimes. It, it, it's an album you can, I can listen, I can hear it anywhere. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's a good, you could throw it on at a dinner party or you could, you know, crank it up and, and, you know, just sort of lose your mind to it. But it, it's kind of, um, I mean, I, I think the history is well, you know, well vetted. I think um, you know this was an album that wasn't particularly well liked when it came out, and has sort of risen to the the position of of you know uh, one of the great albums of all time, if not you know sort of the pinnacle of a lot of people's lists. But to me, it's uh, you know it is the it's when the the Stones I think found their sound um, with Beggars Banquet. I think they perfected it with Exile, and it's it's you know mid. Uh, mid McTaylor era, who I think you know really completed that band and made them the best version of of the Rolling Stones ever. Uh, and there was a you know four album stretch where uh, I think um, where you know he was front and center and he was really the guitarist that Keith Richards liked to play off of. And it just shows there's just a you know there's such a uh, I don't know there's just such a sound that is so individual to the Rolling he Stones. He was American. Too, which I, no, I think he's British. I don't know if that added or not. Was he? I thought he was American. Nope. No, we'll have to fact check that one. But I know that, um, you know, obviously they were in exile from England at the time for tax purposes, recorded the album in, in France in the basement. And, and I agree, it's an album that I really can't listen to. 
those songs don't sound, I mean, they don't sound as good on their own. No. They're all great songs, but it's an album that you literally kind of have to put on start to finish. No, it's the quintessential and album. no reason not to. Yeah, it's, as far as a listening experience, it's really the quintessential album. And from that, I, you know, from that sort of listening experience, I'm, I'm going to go uh, very, uh, I think we both have a Beatles album on here, but different ones. And um, mine is specifically not just a Beatles album, it's side two of Abbey Road, which is basically one long song suite. Um, and I, you know, it, for whatever reason, it just, every time I listen to it, it gets me. And there's certain songs, again, like Exile on Main Street, where if you pull them individually um, out, they don't really stand, they don't really make a lot of sense. But the, you know, 26 or so minutes that uh, they're running together just makes perfect sense. And um, uh, so there you have it. Uh, that's my Beatles record, and what's your Beatles record? Yeah, so my Beatles record is the one that, you know, the reason they made Abbey Road is because they hated the one that I, I picked, which is Let It Be. Um, and so it was an album that they, they were, you know, I think as well documented as well since they filmed the whole thing, Breaking Up. And uh, it was an album that I don't think any of the Beatles really, really liked too much. But it, it's just an album, I think one of the reasons I like it so much is they came to it a little later. So I was, um, you know, everybody's kind of engrossed in the Beatles, especially in your junior high and early high school years. And they're, they're, you know, every Beatles album is good, really good. They're all great. Um, but the song that just kind of melts me every time I never get sick of it is on a million playlists and prior to having playlist mixes is Two of Us. Yeah. It's the opening track off Let It Be, and it's just, you know, probably you know, up there with My Bird Can Sing and a couple other Beatles songs, just a song that I can listen to eight million times in a row. It's funny because it's, uh, it's the sound so of, it's the sound of two guys being nostalgic and, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a camaraderie in it, but there's also, I think throughout the entire Let It Be album is a, just a sound of exhaustion and a, yeah, and a relationship falling apart. So it, it has this really, you know, these are songs that are relatively basic. I mean, obviously, there's some very intricate stuff on there too, but um, they're you know they're relatively basic. It's it's sort of a return to straight ahead rock for the Beatles, but it also it's filtered through that um, you know through through that relationship that's that's sort of dying on the vine. Yeah, and it's a it's a pretty you know I mean you have across the universe, I mean mine, it, you know obviously let it be a piano ballad, but it's a it's a pretty kind of stripped down album. I think your description is, is right on. And it's, uh, it's, a, you know, where some of the other Beatles stuff, you get into the psychedelic, you know, experimentation. This is sort of a back to the bare bones album for me. And, and uh, one that I never get sick of mm. and pop on often. Yeah. What's next for you? What do you got? So next for me, I'm going to go into the, uh, country rock genre <clears throat> of, uh, you know, I think a guy that we both really like a lot and I've seen live many times. Uh, Steve Earle, and so uh, you actually turned me on to Steve Earle with his Al Corazon album, which was the album after this one, and, you know, I fell in love with that album immediately, and then kind of went back and, and did my research, and um, I feel all right as Steve Earle's comeback album, and, and I, I think one of the coolest quotes I ever read, he has, he has a couple actually, but one of them was him, you know, Steve has well-documented drug and alcohol problems, and at, right after he got famous in sort of the late 80s, and this was, um, he had a train of coming, which is kind of the album that showed he could make an album again. It was pretty good. And then this album, he, he was describing walking around Nashville, kind of a, kind of a loner loser at the time because he'd burned every bridge. 
and uh, you know, people asking him what he's working on, and, and his reply was, "Country rubber soul, motherfucker." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it kind of is. It kicks off with "I feel alright," which is just like the best post. It's you a, know, it's a very defiant song. Yeah, it's a very defined song post, you know, sort of being at the edge of, of extinction with drugs and alcohol. And uh, and it's just, it's an awesome album. I mean, it's got, um, my, you know, my favorite song by Steve Earle is Now She's Gone. And it's, it's just a great sort of ballad. And uh, it's got Poor Boy. It's got uh, Bonnie and Billy. He's... Sorry, Billy and Bonnie. You're Still Standing There. Yeah, that's it's, a a, great... it's a complete album. It's another one that I can just pop on. And, it, and it's... You know, it's it's rock and roll enough, folky enough, country enough to kind of hit on every note that, that you love about American music. Yeah, I think I love that album, and I also think um, it's one of very few occasions where a band or an artist gets better after sobering up. Um, yeah, you're right. Actually, it, it's a good point. You know, I'd love to. We should we should uh, put our thinking caps on and come up with a list uh, at some point as part of another podcast of, you know, those. They're it's up there with bands that switch singers. Um, there aren't a whole lot of them that are more successful or or, or put out better art uh, following that. So. Um, it's it'll be interesting. Uh, that'll be an interesting list. But I, yeah, I feel all right. It's a great record. Um, Steve Earle is a is a towering, not a very to- not a very towering, but a towering figure uh, in that um, sort of Americana country music scene. He is imminently quotable too. Um, same guy that said of Towns Van Zant, um, what was it? I'll jump up and down. Oh, oh. Dance on Bob Dylan's coffee table in my cowboy boots and swear that Bob Townsend is the best damn songwriter that ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a happy Nobel Prize. This album prize. was actually, uh, actually Al Cord's album dedicated to Towns, obviously. I thought this album was. Yeah, no, Townsend, that's a And you're right about Mick Taylor. He is an Englishman. So I, I, I've long mistaken that he was an American. I apologize. Yeah. There are, there are, um, since the 20s, I don't think there's been a lot of, Eng- a lot of Americans named Mick. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I'm going to uh, just say that uh, the, my, other, my other list on the other half of the pod was, was very British heavy, and, and this one uh, is really very, um, very American heavy. Uh, and so the, the, my next uh, album is, and I'm going to cheat a little twice on this list, but this one um, I think is sort of at this point established just because of the format it's a gp and return of the grievous angel uh grant parsons two solo albums that were forever put together on one cd and um i know i learned them that way i didn't have the benefit of of having them separately so to me they've always been one album even though i know they're not uh, much the same as uh um you know number one record and and radio city uh, are sort of indelibly, yeah. Um, it was a packaging thing back in the eighties, nineties that they did this. But anyway, uh, GP Return of the Grievous Angel. Um, it's it's a funny one. Um, you can sort of hear his progression throughout these two albums. One, you know, the first one uh, really starts off and is, is far more country oriented, um, whereas the second, and as it gets further into it, despite the fact that he covers a lot of classic country tunes on this, like Love Hurts and, and um, Cash on the Barrelhead, um, he uh, 
the progression from, you know, straight up country trying to do a classic, uh, reverent country music album to uh, Return of the Grievous Angel, which is um, really kind of the birth of Americana. Um, you know, yeah, that. he influenced every single sort of alternative, uh, you know, band that we liked. I mean, I think we're, Steve Earle was obviously influenced by you know, kind of the, the old school country world because that's what he grew up with. And then Grant Parsons on the flip side <laughs> influenced any sort of uh, indie rock or, or kind of what they call it in the 90s, old, you know, old country. Um, he was kind of the standard bearer as well as, you know, the Lemonheads album I mentioned before and, and people like Ari. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that, you know, it's another one of those sneaky people that, you know, I think we you discover and then you realize how much of an influence he had on, on everyone else, and the Flying Burrito Brothers as well, probably. Yeah, but I, I actually also, I mean, Jerry, you lived in Austin for a number of years, and I know people, I know that he's well regarded in that world, but I don't think of uh, people in Texas uh, thinking of him as a standard bearer or a classic. Not at all, no, yeah. I mean, he, I think he's... Um, <clears throat> Because music is just such a part of that town and, and you know, kind of a, obviously there's a, a, a long history of singer-songwriters and, and twang, um, you know, he's definitely well-respected and those albums are loved, but he's kind of an outsider. He's an interloper. I mean, he was a yeah. Harvard kid. He was, Perfect you know, banger. a rich, uh, you know, rich kid from Florida and, and a Harvard kid, you know, went to Harvard, dropped out. And I think, you know, he was probably uh, seen as a bit of a... Um, a poser in the sense that he, you know, he liked to dress the part. And, um, but, you know, when you, when you listen to the, you know, the tone of his voice on, you know, some of the outtakes from Sweethearts of the Rodeo or on these two albums, and particularly when he's duetting with Emmylou Harris, who can't be forgotten in this album. I mean, she's a vital, well, vital. Who he launched. I mean, she wasn't. Yeah, album. but she also just, you know, I mean. And, uh, you know, as much as Marvin Gaye needed Tammy Terrell for his, you know, some of his best stuff, um, you know, there is, you know, there is no, these albums don't work without her. Um, Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, not to keep jumping on you here, these are, as much as, you know, we kind of just described him as an interloper, an outsider to the the real country, you know, Return of the Grievous Angel is probably my favorite country song ever. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not, and, I, uh, in my hour of darkness, you know, thousand dollar wedding, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, they're so good. Oh yeah, and but I think that's part and parcel with us being interlopers as well into this genre. Um, you know, I mean, you have the the bona fides of having lived in Texas, but um, you know, I remember going to Texas to visit you for the first time and, and realizing that your friends down who grew up in Texas, you know, grew up with Merle and Waylon and Willie as the Beatles and Stones of their childhood. It's like, a, you know, there isn't a song that could come on the radio that they wouldn't know. And Hank Williams. Absolutely. So, anyway, what's your next one? So my next one uh, is an album that I mentioned before. We were doing Sophomore Slump, and it's the uh, Bon Iver's or Bonnie Bear, however you say it, um, songs uh, for em, sorry, Forever, Forever Ago. And... Uh, it's just an album that I think we both agree, like, kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, I heard Skinny Love just, I don't know, on some sort of radio show or indie rock website, I can't remember, and instantly just, you know, thought it had that kind of difference in the same kind of way when I heard the Neutral Milk Hotel airplane over the CD. There was just something, the, 
you know, different about it and, and, and really kind of catchy and, and melodic. And, and at the same time, the guy was almost like a soul singer and it was acoustic. And then you sort of read more about the story. And, you know, I guess it was post a, a tough breakup and he kind of locked himself in a Wisconsin cabin and, and you know, had had a band as well that, um, you know, split up. So it was just, he sort of just made this album with no, you know, maybe even thinking that no one would hear it, right? <laughs> um, and it's just a beautiful record. I mean, I... I, I think we joke, a good friend of ours loves this album because it was his divorce record. I always say that it was the album that my, my oldest daughter was born to and, and we listened to constantly. But during that time, she had some, some health issues. She's fine now, but she um, it was just a tough time for us. It was an album that we had on. We were up all night a lot of nights mm-hmm. and it was an album that we could just put on and listen to. And it stayed that way for me. Like, you know, I, I travel a lot for my day job and, and I, you know... Anytime I can't think of anything, I put this on. It's another start to finish for me. There's not a bad song in the album. And that's um, a, there's that's, a couple. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's the very nature of the of this particular podcast. Yeah, it's, it's absolute comfort. I mean, I like all of them, and I think they're all great. There's a couple. I mean, Stacks to me is is probably the stand standout track, along with Rema. And you know, I, I will always love Skinny Bum because it's the song that got me into it. But um, it's just one of those records that, you know, I think, too, one of the things that's funny about comfort food to me is it's not so much that I want to keep it to myself, but it tends to be those albums sometimes that I'm like, eh, nobody's going to love this as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously people do love this album no, but there's an... more than I do or as much. But, you know, it's, it's one that I'm not always running to be like, hey, you got to hear this. It's one that I'm just kind of like, yeah, I really like it. You know? Yeah, I'm content not to proselytize on it. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, I would say that... Um, the my other the other half of my list uh, that were the later albums de- definitely tend to to take on more of that. This is individual to me than um, these. I mean, these are these are the albums that I really listened to until I was you know going to college and um, and in fact the last one was my freshman year of college. Uh, actually, no, it was was not. It was my senior year of high school. So these are these are the albums that I grew up you know really. I go back to because there is a comfort in in the things that you you know were warm to you when you were growing up. That said, the next half of them you're gonna uh, really question um, the ability of me to be a warm person. Um, the my next album on the list is London Calling, which you know I've probably listened to as much or more than any other album I've ever owned. Um, it was weird. It, it came in a time when. Uh, you know, I still had albums, and so, um, you know, it was four sides, and I wanted to hear London Calling because it was a great song, and I wanted to hear, um, you know, Train in Vain because it was a great song, and the middle part of the album, you know, those are the first and last songs on the album, the middle of the album kind of, I had to grow into as I got older, um, but I remember distinctly flying into England one time, and I had a Walkman, a cassette Walkman, um, in London calling on, and realizing that that whole, you know, sort of third quarter of the album with, you know, Death or Glory, Coca-Cola, um, Lover's Rock, Card Cheat, it's just they were they were really weird for a, for a band that was known for being sort of punk rock. I mean, these were like, none of these were punk rock songs. I guess Death or Glory kind of is. But, um, you know, I mean, stuff like the card sheet has like a piano ballad. It sounds like it was written in the 30s. 
Rene Gay, Guns of Brixton. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's all over the map. Yeah, it, it's funny because I think some of these albums will be my childhood through you. So I was a lot younger, but I, I you know, obviously we lived together, and, and that you know, these are a lot of albums you turned me on, and it's it's great that you hear you say that because I remember being into the Dead Kennedys and punk rock and, and things like that, and early on and. and London Calling, and, you know, look, the cover of the album is the guy smashing, you know, Paul Simmons smashing a bass. The it's the greatest album cover of all time. Awesome, yeah, with the, which is at the Armadillo World Headquarters in Austin, Texas, of all places. And, um, you know, it was voted best album of the 80s by Rolling Stone, and it, you know, came out in 1980. And to your exact experience with this album, me, probably later, obviously, since you turned me on to it earlier, was loved London Calling, kind of could leave the rest. And um, Train on Vane, I think I didn't even know was on it. I had a cassette. Oh, there's another song on here. You know, of course, it's a great pop song and, and you know, continues. To, it's a classic rock song at this point. But mm-hmm. it, it's the album that kind of took, you know, uh, punk rock or whatever you want to call it. They just were like, we're not punk rock. I mean, this is, we are, the, you know, what were they? The, what was their tagline? The only band that matters. The only band that matters. And, and it was, uh, you know, true i mean that that album i grew into hugely and it's, it's so diverse totally interesting really good and i learned to just have a huge respect for joe strummer and uh mick jones on that from that i mean just the harmony and the backup singing and like the you know the pop versus the kind of rock edge it was, it was just awesome yeah it's funny i mean that's a band that within two years put out a double album and a triple album and they had a lot to say about which is uh you know uh um, well, they were interested in stuff, you know, they had, you know, sort of uh, dance and they had, you know, yeah. straight pop and rockabilly and I mean, they just, and they didn't come across kind of like Exile on Main Street, right, which is all blues and country and, you know, sort of taking other genres, but it comes across very authentic. You yeah, know, they were co-opters. Do that too. Yeah, they were co-opters, big co-opters of, of black music, I mean, particularly you know, reggae and, and, you know, I mean, they got in, you know, radio class. I hate and, reggae, but I love the class. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand what you mean. There are certain things where, I, it's, you know, certain genres are too much for me and then they get filtered through the, you know, they get, basically they get filtered through England and then they become like, you know, completely listenable. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Dead Kennedys because my next one was Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables and that's just, um, I don't know, that's just a comfort uh, comfort record, the, the least comforting comfort record I think anybody could ever choose. But I don't know; those are pretty comforting lyrics. They're, <laughs> they're, um, they make me feel better about how I feel sometimes. But the the funny thing was, you know, the way I got so familiar with that album is that you know I was away from home um, for the first time. I you know when I was fourteen or fifteen, and I mean for an extended period of time. And I used to fall asleep to that album, and people would thought I was nuts because I would fall asleep to Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. But the fact was that it was so, like, the the music isn't very bass or drum heavy, and so it's also, it's it's very, uh, if you if you don't have it on a super high level, it's, it's kind of monotonous. Um, and actually, the you know, for punk rock, for like a political punk, American punk rock California record, it's really funny and well-written and tuneful um you know they could actually play their instruments which was a uh, um sort of distinguished them from the rest of their conference and i also i always thought of the dead kennedys i mean this is not much to do with the the music itself but i never thought of the dead kennedys as having peers 
Um, I yeah, did they it. Stood alone, I right? did it. The kind time. of like some other bands, yeah. Yeah, no, I did it at the time because they were, you know, they were all logos to me. I didn't know what anybody looked like. I just knew what like the teacher. Circle jerks, DK. Yeah, but I, you know, I sort of thought they were all lumped into one thing, and it seems. Um, for you know, a variety of reasons. A, they were from San Francisco. B, I don't think a lot of people liked Jello by Afro very much. Um, it seemed like a pain in the ass. Um, but I love this record. And to, if oddly enough, I don't think they ever really put out anything else that was very good. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some songs here and there, and, and I was a big Dead Kennedys fan. And I, I'll just, I won't go. You, you nailed the album, and I agree, it's a great choice. I just will tell my, my one story here of going with our sister Lisa to, I think, a Sam Goody and buying the vinyl. Um, I think I had like, some allowance, and I may have been in, gosh, fourth or fifth grade <laughs> buying fresh fruit for rotting vegetables from the, the vinyl from Sam Goody. It wasn't because vinyl was cool. It was because record stores still had mostly vinyl. And uh, that was my, my experience with that record. It's a great record. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's bordering on child abuse, but yeah. <laughs> so, what was next for you? So next for me is uh, I'm going to take it back into the. I'm actually going to take it into the, the millennium here and, and go with Phoenix, and it's uh, it's Phoenix's album right before their hit album on the what was it Wolfgang Amadeus Wolfgang Amadeus, and uh, it's the album. It's never been like that, and so. Uh, this is another one. I think a lot of mine have this kind of uh, this theme where they're not. There's nothing like really stand out about this album, but it's just every song is good. It's really like well crafted. I mean, Wolfgang Amadeus for um, Phoenix is, has some great. I mean, I love that album, and it's got hits. You know, that that um those songs stand out. There's those singles were were fantastic. This album, you know, everything kind of blends together in a really nice way. It's, you know, it's got Long Distance Call, Constellation Prizes were probably kind of the, mm-hmm. the two singles off there. And I love, like, Lost and Found and One One Time Too Many. And it's a chiller album for them. I think their album prior to this was a little more dance-heavy. Yeah. And it also has an amazing single on it. I can't recall the name right now. This one, people compared a lot to The Strokes for some reason, but when you listen to it, it I mean, it's got a little bit of that, it's got, that it's guitar a, it's sound. It's got a jittery feeling to it. Yeah, it's definitely jittery, but I think it's less jittery than anything else they did. I think it's like one of the just sort of, I think it's a really chill record, and, and you know, uh, a record that, you know, can you can throw it on a coffee shop, you can throw it on a dinner party, you can, you can rock out to it, you can turn it up loud, you can have it on as background music. It's like kind of a one-size-fits-all great record by them and i'm a big phoenix fan i think you are too mm-hmm. um but this is the one that is the one that i go back to more than any and it's funny i think I, I got turned on to it by pitchfork.com or pitchfork media at the time and um it was uh the founder it was the one of the on their best of the year you know albums of the year was on there and i think the rest of the staff sort of made fun of him for including it and that that's what made me buy it i was like oh i gotta check this out <laughs> and really i uh, really enjoyed it still yeah. do yeah that um it's funny that's another um sort of instance of of um liking a band's album is sort of you know there's there's a lot of bands for whom there's a consensus on which is their which is their best album, and I find that the, a lot of the time I like the one. Uh, another, I think maybe thing that gives you ownership of, of some of the stuff and maybe makes you feel uh, makes you feel like a personal record to you is when you like 
the album that isn't everybody's favorite by a certain band, and certainly you've chosen one of those. Uh, I'm about to give you one of mine, too, actually, and, and I've talked about them uh, on prior podcasts uh, when we did the Grand Slam, so I'll, I'll keep this brief, but uh, X Under the Big Black Sun. Um, I find it imminently listenable uh, in the in the world of songs that I will listen to um, over and over again and never get tired of The Have Nots, which was, you know... Oh man, what a great song! Yeah, it's just not you know it wasn't one of the singles. It wasn't. It would never have been one of the singles. Um, I think it's one of the best songs ever written about Los Angeles, uh, better than, even than Los Angeles. Um, Under the Big Black Sun's another one where you know people sort of point to Los Angeles or uh, more fun in the New World as you know sort of the primary X record, and um, for me, it's Under the Big Black Sun. Uh, is the one that I go home to all the time. It's, you know, it's painful. It's uh, it's about loss. Um, it's about Los Angeles, uh, and it's um, it's just a great great album. Kicks off with Hungry Wolf, which is um, Billy Zoom at his at his ultimate high powers. Um, and DJ Bone Break, I and mean, that's a killer yeah. drums and guitar right there. Yeah, they're all playing the same thing. Um, but anyway, under the big black sun, um, I won't spend too much time yeah, on that cause I've gone I, through it before, but I'm just going to throw one more under the big black sun thing out that you gave me that cassette. I love it. And, uh, you know, we, we have talked about it a lot, but one of my favorite in big black sun, um, moments was back in the eighties. The there was a teenage cop show called 21 jump street. This is pre the movies that are out for any of those who don't remember the show with Johnny Depp. And uh, one of the episodes was about runaway kids, and the every the whole soundtrack of that episode was under the big black sun. And <laughs> mind you, I was maybe in fifth grade at the time. I just thought I was like I had to have been the only fifth grader who knew <laughs> who was soundtracking that episode yeah. because totally I was like, oh my god, you know, I love this. Yeah, is that, I, that that's amazing. I, I don't I, I don't think I ever knew that, and I've got to go see it now. I, I'm, I'm yeah, sure. you look it up. It's, uh, it's got, you definitely could probably Google it. Um, so my next one is is one a band that I think you have. I think again, like the Beatles, we we both have albums, but or maybe you went over this one with Christian. I, I don't know, but it, it spiritualized songs in the A and E. Um, and this is another album that I, I just. It's funny. I've always liked spiritualized. And now, you know, I got into them when they were, you know, current, right? So when they first came out, I, I had their records, obviously, uh, Ladies and Gentlemen was a huge one. And, uh, but I never really, I kind of listened to songs by them here and there, and I, I never really dug deep. And I ended up seeing them live on this tour, and they blew me away. And it was just like, whoa, like, where have I been? Because, you know, I had friends who this was, you know, their favorite band. And, and you know, I just kind of always liked them, respected them, um, but never really dug into them. And this is the album, first album I dug into. And um, it's just it's just a great album. I mean, um, I, I like pretty much every song on it. Soul on Fire is amazing. You know, Death Take Your Fiddle. It's it's a cool album and it's kind of a comeback album if I'm not wrong I think he had, yeah it was a come, you know, it was a comeback from I think the, he goes on and off the wagon much like much like Train of Coming or, or I Feel Alright for Steve Rill I think it was a comeback yeah. from the Dead album um, exactly I, I think it he had revived. and actually I mean Songs in A&E is a play on words uh, A&E in, right. in, in England is the emergency room exactly so 
Um, so literally songs from the emergency room. But, um, you know, they, it's, I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan and um, probably never will be, but this is sort of my Pink Floyd. You know, they do a lot with like some backup singers. It's, uh, you know, got a, you know, there's some guitar noodling, just things that I normally am not that, that into, but for some reason, some reason, spiritualized really puts it all well, together. Spiritualized is, is the great, and, and I have Ladies and Gentlemen Were Floating in Space on my list as well. Um, but, you know, spiritualized, one of those, uh, British bands that really, uh, adhered to that, to that British, um, yeah, the old technique of, of writing a good song, um, having a half decent voice to carry it and then hiring a ton of really good singers to make it yeah. sound like it's epic. You know, I mean, if there's, you it's know, the primal scream, the, uh, primal know, the scream, primal. pink Floyd, uh, yeah. um, you know, give me shelter. I, Happy Mondays. Yeah. Is, is give me, is give me shelter really sung by Mick Jagger? I don't think so. Right. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, that's, uh, I'm going back to another, uh, English, uh, one, not I don't. Th- I can't ever tell whether this album is popular or whether it's relatively obscure. And I just it had a big piece and you know big part in my upbringing. But Soul Mining by the the um, I I feel like people know it, but people don't. Um, it's a very again, it's a very particular uh, time and place album for me. But um, I loved it then, and I I always go back to it. And there's uh, it's a, it's another, um, I think like ladies and gentlemen, we were floating in space or songs in A&E. I think we said, or, you know, Christian and I established that, um, you know, spiritualized is the oral equivalent of, of a Xanax and a vodka. And, um, to me, like soul mining is, is not necessarily that vibe, but it's best listened to in that condition. Yeah, it's a uh, that's a funny album because that's an album that doesn't get much credit. You know, a lot of people go back and give a lot of those '80s bands. <clears throat> you know, obviously you've got New Order and Cure and, and kind of bands of that era. Even Echo and the Bunnymen, I think. You know, get a lot of those guys get you know a lot of uh, revisiting and, and soul mining is is out there you know, alone. Kind of, yeah, I mean, best single by any of those bands. But I also you know, think, uh, I also kind of feel like the people who like Soul Mining, for the people who like Soul Mining, it's their favorite album. Right, yeah. And I think it's people of a very particular age, probably my age, um, you know, who discovered it in high school or college um, that, that really still live with it. And it's a very, I mean, it's, a, it's you know, a very intricate musically, um, but it is very electronic. It's, you know... The technology, you know, so much of the '80s was spoiled by bad production, and I don't feel like this is a badly produced album. But I do feel like it's of that era where the drums didn't sound organic, and a lot of them, you know, a lot of the sounds on the album are very synthesized and manufactured, and not necessarily the ones that are supposed to sound synthesized or manufactured. But came together well. That's a good one. Well, I have one more album, and then I've got some songs, just because I, those are kind of my highlight Cumberbrood albums. But we'll, we'll obviously can continue on albums that you have. But my, I, I went current with this one, and it, it sort of replaced a album for me. You know, I, I, I'm not sure if you went over this one with Christian, or, or do you have it on your list? Win, but we, if you do, Air Moon Safari for me was replaced by 
a band Rye and uh, their album Woman, and so, it's uh. So you, you now know, eat you now eat meals to another album. Is that what I'm? I do to? when I have dinner parties. I'm cheated <laughs> on air after maybe twenty years of listening to that. If it's that old, I can't remember. But um, and I think it, you know if it spiritualizes a Xanax in a vodka or let's say methadone in vodka, I think Rye is um you know a nice Merlot. And maybe a Xanax. It's it's a very uh, just smooth record. It's an electronic album, so it's you know this kind of DJ type thing with a man who sounds amazingly like a woman. And um, you know, I really actually didn't know it was a man until I heard other people confirm that it was. And, and his name is Mike Malosh. And uh, I don't know if they're British or I probably or American, but it's a uh, it's just one of the like it's since like Sade it's it's one of the smoothest records I've heard in a while and just kills me every time I mean you just throw on the first track open and it, it's just awesome you know and, and I've heard that they're great live I've not had a chance to see I, them I actually haven't really ever listened to them so this is interesting I think yeah I turned Christian onto it I think you would really really like it and yeah, uh, yeah I remember you know kind of the days of Maxwell and, and you know uh, obviously Sade who we like kind of the smooth you know I guess what do you call it like acid jazz or whatever but from the 90s it's along those lines but it, it has a really cool kind of modern you know electronic vibe to it as well and, and then this gentleman's voice is just it's other absurd. kind of otherworldly I've heard a, I mean I've heard yeah. enough uh, I've heard a song or two and I, I mean it is it's a um, it's sort of you know almost in that Sigur Ross um, Anthony and the Johnsons kind of vein of like just does not sounding like it's of a human yeah you're not quite sure what it is I mean it's uh, but yeah that's that's my new you know dinner dinner party album it's just a uh, and it's another one that people kind of you know or like, what is this? This is great. You know, I think everybody that hears it really digs it. And I, one of the other themes for me, I guess, minus spiritualized is it's another album that clocks in under 40 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a great album, it's, but it's concise and short and it doesn't, you know, go on and on. Well, I'm going to go the opposite direction, uh, which is not a concise album that you should never play at a dinner party. Um, it is strictly a headphones record for me. Um, and actually, I'm going to throw in its its uh, successors as well. But it's Zen Arcade by Husker Du, um, and I would throw New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig in there too, as albums that I can just listen to start to finish always. But Zen Arcade, there's something about um, it was a I mean Zen Arcade was a Walkman album for me. It it was a cassette uh, Walkman album for me, and there's something about it. Uh, that may I, I spent a lot of time on buses um, when I was younger, not city buses, but you know buses going back to school and bus going back to college and things. And um, it was it was a really great album to lock other people out to. Um, it definitely you know it had such a you know sort of visceral feeling to it, and it was you know told a story. It was it was interesting. There were you know there were the sort of classical piano interludes. There's songs that sound like pop songs or songs that sound like, you know, uh, you know, um, dentistry, uh, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of varying noises on there, but these guys were sort of, it was what I always liked, you know, it's what I always wanted in punk rock. I wanted loud music that had tunes in it and, and actually decent writing. And so that, that album became very dear to me. 
Um, and again, it was if you ever wanted to shut anybody out, which is largely uh, what you spend your teenage years doing, uh, is a great album to flip on and and just go you know all the way through with. Um, I mean, the last song is a thirteen minute feedback loop, basically. But it's just uh, for whatever reason, it had enough of a driving force in it that it didn't sound repetitive to me at thirteen minutes, even. So, well, uh, you were you were kind of there for their. Um, I mean, probably obviously a little young, but you know, high school years for the height of Oscar Du, and you saw them live a few times, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I, um, you know, uh, saw them subsequently uh, on their own, which was a different beast altogether. But um, I do think, um, you know, I, I, there's something about that band that I loved. And it was another one, too, where um, I was always confused at the amount of attention that Bob Mould got because I thought Grant Hart was equally good um, at writing songs, certainly at me- pop melodies. Um, and I like a lot of the, you know, I like both of their stuff a lot. So it was, you know, dueling songwriters, but both of whom I really enjoyed. So... Um, young and angry. Yeah. It was good. I mean, you know, you mentioned two others on their New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig, and, and those are probably the two that I have more allegiance to. I, I like Center Cage, and I just, but I've never quite cracked the code as much as you have. I had it on vinyl, and I think it was a pain in the ass to flip. It was a four record. Yeah, I think you, you were the only kid playing uh, Zen Arcade on a Fisher, <laughs> Fisher Price stereo. But to your point, I mean, Grant Hart, I mean, in terms of psychic warfare, books about UFOs, and uh, you know, I think all of Flip Your Wig is a perfect album to mm-hmm. me, so I, I yeah. highly uh, recommend all of those as, as uh, comfort food albums. And then my last two. Maybe, to... not, maybe not comfortable for the rest of your family, but certainly comfortable. No, and actually I'm going to go in the absolute uh, opposite direction and then back to offending your family, but um, my last two are Purple Rain soundtrack, which I'll never get tired of. Um, and again, like so good. a lot of, you know, like... London Calling or a lot of other albums that I, I really, you know, love start to finish. It um, it started with being attracted to, you know, the songs that are most approachable. And, you know, I, I have to say at this point, I mean, the beautiful one, the last two and a half minutes of the beautiful ones maybe, you know, is the, you know, can reduce me to tears. So, um, you know, I love Purple Rain. It's a, it, you know, if you broke it down... Um, that is one of the least likely hit records, and yet um, everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. Um, I think that's got to be a top ten of all time. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a great record. It also came out, you know, it came out at a at a time that you know a lot of things are uh, when it came out in '84. So you know, it was a it was a transitional time in my life. Um, and then the next one uh, actually came out. Uh, my senior year of high school, I think, uh, You're Living All Over Me by Dinosaur Jr., who I'm actually going to go see this weekend. But um, that to me... All I, can, all I can hear is the fuzz of uh, little furry things when you mention that up. I know. blasting over a speaker. So. And that's another one, I think, like Soul, you know, like Zen Arcade, Soul Mining, um, that I just listened to so much that it became mine. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I. it's also... Um, you know, one of the things that we uh, distinguished comfort food as is, is things that are so uh, familiar to you that you can do other things while you listen to them and not remember that they're there. 
And it's odd for an album that's as, you know, sonically aggressive as you're living all over me, but it's one of the albums I'll write to um, because, you know, I know the songs so well and I've listened to them so many times that they've turned into, um, they can, you know, I can, I can lose myself in, in there and just make it background noise. It's one of those albums, too. It's funny. I mean, I, I think I had Bug first and then You're Living All Over Me, but I almost felt like it was one song continuously. Yeah. And I had it on a recorded cassette tape that I, you know, I'm pretty sure I recorded off of your vinyl version or, or uh, tape version. And it literally just sounded like from start to finish, like the first chord to the last song, kind of one song, almost like a built to spill from now on for me felt like that, too. And it's uh, it's the nice thing about Dinosaur Junior too is they, you know, I think they're a band that fully realizes their best stuff, especially when you see them live, and you always are in for a big dose of your living all over me. Well, I can full volume. I can tell you. you know, I mean, the, I, I I will you know tell you full you know fully honestly that I've listened to You're Living All Over Me, and I can hear the heart beating as one by Yellow Tango as much as I've listened to anything, and I'm not sure I could tell you what the track list is. I was just going to say, I think I was thinking maybe it's because it was a, you know, recorded, you know, cassette tape for me, but, uh, I don't think, you know, I definitely know in a jar cause I had a sing that as a single, um, that I bought again when I was in, you know, sort of fourth or fifth grade and we were in Richmond, Virginia visiting our other sister and, um, at Plan Nine Records, mm-hmm. and the guy was just like, "Where are you from?" Was <laughs> <laughs> it Boston? But um, you know, it was uh, other. Other than that, I do not know the song names, but I know that every song about is amazing. Oh, I know all the words to all the songs. I just don't. I couldn't tell you the song titles. Maybe if I was. It's pressed. also like uh, I think it, it was kind of nice to find. I think you mentioned this uh, with Husker Du. You know, I think a lot of times as a rebellious teen, you kind of, you want rebellious music. For me, it was, you know, hip-hop and, and punk rock. and, and um, But I, I love melody, and I love the Beatles, and I love, you know, tunes. It's like that Lemonheads album that came out for me. I think Dino was the same way. It was, like, edgy enough and, and rocky enough and different enough to not be classic rock, but at the same time, it was... You know, total guitar guy Cer- rock. Certainly you know, evocative you know? of classic rock. I mean. Yeah, definitely. It was it's an awesome album. Um, well, do you have any more albums? I had a couple songs I was going to just flip through. Oh, yeah, throw them out. I, I got into the shuffle mode, and, and they're, you know, I certainly could attach them to albums, but it would go on forever. Um, any other albums for you, Wynn? No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm done. So I have a couple just tunes that I, I would say, like, the same, and this is, totally indicative of the Spotify age that we live in now where I still do listen to those albums we, we listed off, but you know, I also flip around so much more than I ever used to. And two songs that from the same band that I, I constantly play no matter what are no surprises and fake plastic trees by Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And those are just, you know, kind of like a cough medicine to me. It's they're just soothing and, and wonderful the other one is uh, Dismiss, There's a Light That Never Goes Out. That song, you know, makes me feel just warm inside. I, I, the lyrics, the changes, it's it's just, it's my favorite, it's not my favorite Smith album, again. Mm-hmm. Queen is Dead is not my favorite Smith album. No, no my neither. my favorite Smith song. Yeah. I think it might be there. And then I had uh, PYT by Michael Jackson, which is a, one that I feel like every time I hear it, I want to, you know, sing along to. And it's great. And then uh, 
one from the country days is tonight. And you turned me on to this, this song, actually, on, on, I think on our first trip. It was actually, uh, I lived in Austin, Texas. I picked up Wyndham in Dallas with my friend Don, whose parents had made us uh, roadies to go pick up my brother who went to the airport with. <laughs> and his dad was a Dallas police officer. These were, these were definitely uh, hardcore Texans. And so we picked up Wynn with, uh, you know, not, not, nothing to do, you know, warnings included. I wrote a uh, roadie cocktails, one especially made for you. Thanks. And uh, you had made a great country mix for us to drive to Austin with, which is a four-hour drive, by the way. And uh, tonight, I think I'm going to go downtown by the Flatlanders. And, and just the, the saw, uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore's voice, um, you know, there's just something about that song. It's, a, it's got like kind of a creepy, but yet like upli- uh, just a great song. Yeah, I think it's another, that's another guy, <laughs> Jimmy Dale Gilmore, who just has another otherworldly voice. It's like it doesn't sound like it comes from the guy it sounds it comes from. Um, and uh, it, it is funny. Like I, I think I was probably coming down. I was, you know, dipping my toe um, in. Uh, I think we lived in New York. I think you were living in New York City. And yeah. you made a, a country mix. Country mix, which is which is, a, which is park in New York City. Yeah, which is exotic <laughs> at the time. And they get down there, and you know, every like that's when I learned that everybody down there um, knows every country song ever. Yeah, um, I think Don was my you know goofy. Uh, white friend who had uh, dreadlocks and was like a hippie kid and you know he was like oh yeah like he I think he was singing full blast to you know every song he had on the mix because he'd grown up in all of them yeah that's and, funny uh, but yeah it's just a great song and, and those are ones that I, I constantly will just kind of throw on if I need, need something alright well uh, you know um, certainly um, you know if you have any uh, comments uh, tweet them back to us but uh, I think um, comfort food for the holidays well done, Jer. Yeah, it's lots of fun. All See right. You in the next one. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time. <laughs>